Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 this morning. We want to look at verses 15 through 23, the issue of two masters. Uh, I can tell you everybody here has a master this morning, right? You have one of two masters, and that's what uh, the issue will be in our study this morning in uh, Romans chapter 6. And let's uh, pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts. Help me to explain the text accurately and clearly. And uh, Lord, may the Holy Spirit have his way in every heart as the word of God goes forth now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, note on the overhead, uh, can I have the first slide? There we go. Okay, thank you. Uh, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God or the gospel of God, and we have worked our way down to that section in chapter 6 through 8, uh, Sanctification of the Believer. After Paul's introduction, called the prologue in the book, we then have Paul thematically dealing with large major subjects, very methodically. And the flow of thought goes like this. And this is Romans 1 through 6. We have a universal sin problem. And then justification by faith alone in Christ. How do we get right with God? Well, it's through faith in Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And that results in solidarity, union, identification with Christ involving the spiritual realities of being dead to sin and alive to God. I mean, this is a fact. This is a spiritual reality. Well, the believer is then called upon to know this, to reckon it to be so, and to present ourselves to God accordingly. Paul's summary conclusion is that sin no longer has mastery over the believer because we are no longer under the Mosaic law, but are now under the reign of grace. Grace is behind all that we now are in Christ. Grace defines our union and relationship with God through Christ. Really, to say you are under grace is to say you are now under Christ. Law ruled Old Testament. Grace rules the believer now under Christ in the New Testament. But this brings up another related question. The whole of Romans 6 is really dealing with the issues of grace and sin. How does, uh, how does this, you know, we all struggle with sin yet. We say we're under grace, we still wrestle with sin. How do you explain this? We see this in two detractor questions, as we might call them. The first is in verse 1, where the detractor asks, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, that question is then answered with a resounding no in verses 2 through 14 that we have already studied. Now a follow-up related question is asked in verse 15, and that's where we pick up our study this morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. The natural, unsaved person really does not understand grace. They rationalize everything in a way that is really totally unbiblical. They may reason like this. If we're no longer under the law, which forbade us to sin, then we can now just do as we please. And we can sin with immunity. The problem is this line of thinking does not understand grace. Is really a life-changing reality. Under grace brings into view a whole new relationship with Christ and a whole new relationship with sin. Grace does not give a license to sin, but rather puts the believer in a whole new relationship with sin and Christ that alters the life. That's really what Paul is saying all the way through chapter 6. If a person thinks that being under grace means that they're free to sin... They really do not understand what being under grace means. Being under grace does not mean being under nothing. As believers under grace, we are now under the law of Christ. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or rather chapter 9, verse 21. 
to those who are without law as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. Under something. We're under grace. But we're under law toward Christ. And he says that I may win those who are without law. Being under grace means we are in a life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's emphatic answer is certainly not. Being under grace does not mean it's okay to sin. And he will now explain why, only from a slightly different angle than he has previously done in the chapter. Verse 16, here's the point, and he's going to develop this. Do you not know, it's almost a mild rebuke, you should know. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. His point is you are a slave in one category or another. Paul is here laying down a principle that shows Who is a person's master? That's the great issue. You have one. Who is it? Who is your master? That is the issue. You know, really, that's a lordship issue. The word lord means master. Who is your lord? Who is your master? A person is a slave to whom they obey, whether sin or obedience. Paul presents only two options here. And only two. There are two possible masters as presented by Paul, either sin or God. Everyone is a slave either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Again, he emphasizes that they should know this. Now, you understand the Roman Empire was full of slaves. They knew about slavery. Uh, Some estimate that perhaps as much as one-third of the Roman Empire was comprised of slaves, At one point, they kind of thought, well, you know, we should mark the slaves. They should dress in a particular way so we would recognize them. But somebody said, that's a bad idea. There's so many slaves, they might think, hey, we can can overthrow the rest of the population. There's so many of us. So let's put that idea aside. But huge amount of slaves in the Roman Empire. Undoubtedly in the Roman church here. There were many that were still slaves or who had been slaves. So they understood the concept of slavery very well. You see, a slave is one who has a master, and obedience is the hallmark of slavery. Note that. A slave is the one who has a master, and obedience is the hallmark of slavery. Now, Paul will go on to show that slavery to obedience is really slavery to God, as seen in verse 22. However, here in verse 16, he emphasizes slavery to obedience to show that being under grace does not lead to sin, rather just the opposite, to obedience. If you're under grace, I can promise you God is at work in your life to steer you in the way of obedience. Doesn't mean you're always obedient. In fact, you won't be. We all stumble in many ways. We all still have the flesh. We all struggle. But we are in process God is at work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ, including the whole issue of discipline that we've talked about. So being under grace involves being a slave of obedience that demonstrates itself in righteousness. To be a slave of sin results in death, ultimately eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. To be a slave of obedience demonstrates itself in righteousness. That is aligning oneself with living right according to what God says. Now, Paul's thought here is not so much that a slave has to obey his master, but rather that the master one obeys shows whose slave that person really is. Paul is arguing that if we are believers, we have had a change in masters, and it will now show in obedience, to some degree, on some level. And he will say in verse 17, they have made that transition to obedience. Now, if Christ is your master, then you should obey him. And in fact, John says, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, 3. 
If sin is your master, you obey it. Paul presents an either-or situation. It can't be both. Either one is, and we're talking slavery now. We're talking lordship. We're talking mastery. Either one is a slave of obedience to Christ or they're a slave of sin. A person cannot have both Christ and sin as their master. It's one or the other. Uh, Jesus said this. No one can serve two masters. It's not possible. Uh, the master-slave relationship is a lordship issue. Uh, you know, it is interesting. As a brand-new Christian, I was trained in easy believism very strongly. There's been a lot of things I've, as I studied the Scripture, say, you know what, that, that wasn't quite right. Uh, this is probably the strongest lordship text in the New Testament, what I'm teaching this morning, although there are others, uh, Romans 1, Romans 10, Romans 14. Uh, you know, it's pretty much through and through. But this is the great issue. Is sin my Lord or is Jesus my Lord? There's the issue. The dominant word throughout this whole section here is the word slave being found eight times in Romans 6, 15 through 23. Great issue. Who is your master? Now, again, you say, well, boy, that, that means I'm obedient. No, it doesn't. Uh, you can be disobedient to your master, and we are. The, and this is the point that he's hammering. Christ is your master. Now live consistently with that reality. That, that's really what Romans 6 is emphasizing. You need to, as a way of life, be in sync with the reality, the spiritual reality. In conversion, we have a change of masters, as described by Paul now in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet something happened. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. If you understand this properly, it's one of the greatest verses in the New Testament on the issue of conversion and salvation. Recounting this transition on the part of the believers in Rome, Paul begins with thanksgiving to God. It's really God's doing. From A to Z, our, the, the credit for our salvation goes to God. He makes it happen. Romans 6.17 is one of the great verses on salvation, as I say, and it is an emphasis on him being Lord, that we are now his slaves. We were slaves of sin. That's where we were. But now we're slaves of God. We've had a change of masters. And this transition, this change of masters, it happened at a certain point. It happened at conversion. And it happened through an act of obedience from the heart, what Paul previously referred to as the obedience of faith. In conversion, we obeyed from the heart a certain form of doctrine, namely the lordship of Christ. That is the great issue in this whole surrounding context. Romans 6, 17 contrasts what we were as slaves to sin, to now that the believer is a slave of God. And here Paul recounts how we got, how we got there through an act of obedience from the heart. You see, conversion involves a commitment of the heart. Paul in Romans 6 is describing our position as slaves of God, but here in verse 17, he recalls how we got there. You are slaves of God, how did you get there? It started with an act of obedience in the heart, not, not works. No, no, no works. The obedience of faith. As unbelievers, we were slaves of sin. That's where we all were. Everyone starts there by reason of their default position of being in Adam. But how do we transition from being slaves of sin to being slaves of God? How does that happen? That is the ultimate question. And Paul right here in Romans 6, 17 explains how this happens. He says, 
You obeyed from the heart. There is the key. Don't you know the one you obey, you're a slave to? Verse 16. Thanks be to God, you obeyed. There's been a whole change in direction here. A whole change of masters. Thank God that's happened to you. You obeyed from the heart. This is the obedience of faith that delivers from sin and places one under the mastery of Christ. Steve Lawson says, beginning and concluding the book of Romans with the obedience of faith is a literary device known as inclusio or inclusion. This is when the author starts and ends with the same emphasis. This underscores what is stated and emphasizes it all for all to see. What Paul is stressing in the book of Romans is that the gospel commands the obedience of faith. It is how he starts his letter in Romans 1.5 and how he ends in Romans 16.26. So we are not surprised that in the middle of Romans 6, Paul states this dominant idea of obedience. Note uh, throughout the book of Romans. For obedience to the faith, 1.5, 6.17, obeyed from the heart. 10.16, they have not obeyed the gospel. 15.18, to make the Gentiles obedient. And then again, to uh, the other bookend here, Romans 16.26, for obedience to the faith. So from beginning to end, Paul in Romans makes the great issue of human response that of obedience to the faith. This is the crossover point that moves a person from slavery to sin to slavery to God. A response of obedience is involved. The touch point of saving faith is the point of great exchange. When we exchange sin as our master for Christ as our master. Notice Paul emphasizes that you obeyed from the heart. This is a description of saving faith. It's a matter of the heart. I've shared growing up, I had an intellectual faith, and I would look at John 3, 16, which we had posted on the front of the wall in our church, and I'd say, God can't send me to hell because I believe. After I actually got saved, I was reading the Bible. You know, saved people tend to do that more than unsaved people. And uh, I saw here, it, this is what I read in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, showing he is Lord over all, even the grave, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes under righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I had missed the heart of the issue. It's with the heart you believe. Again, Steve Lawson says, you became obedient from the heart. Verse 17, as a matter of fact, there are no conditions put on it. This is not true of only some Christians or merely a lot of Christians. Instead, this is true of every Christian. If you are a Christian, the reality is you, have, you became obedient from the heart. It's true of all Christians. This defines true, authentic Christianity. And what they obeyed was a form of, of doctrine. This is the doctrine of Christ as seen in the gospel involving who he is as Lord and Savior. The word form refers to a mold or a pattern and the word doctrine means teaching. In view is the mold or pattern of teaching that they in obedience of faith had aligned with. And in particular the whole surrounding context would argue that this form of teaching was the lordship or the mastery of Christ. To show you all the more this is true, not only is the whole issue in the surrounding context about slavery and mastery, but then Paul concludes the chapter with a summary statement saying, we now have eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Saying Jesus is our Lord means that we're now his slaves, and he's our master. This is Paul's crowning statement at the end of the chapter. That is now our position in Christ, and we enter into it by the obedience of faith. Well, not only did they obey from the heart this form of doctrine, but Paul then adds, to which you were delivered. 
Very interesting way he puts this. We might normally expect Paul to say that a certain doctrine was delivered to them. But here he reverses the order by saying they were delivered to this form of doctrine. You see, the word delivered is the idea of being delivered over to something. Uh, this very same word is used by Paul in chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and is there translated gave, as in Romans 1.24, where it says God gave them up to uncleanness. And again in 126, God gave them up to vile passions. And again in 128, God gave them over to a debased mind. So the word delivered is a strong word meaning to be delivered over to another. In this case, in obeying the gospel from the heart, they were delivered over to the lordship truth of Jesus Christ. That truth now molds and shapes them. In the obedience of faith, they were placed into that mold. So the idea is this. The word form describes a mold often used to shape hot molten metal. In the obedience of faith, God shapes us to where we are now conformed to the form of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that we have now aligned with the truth of it. It is to the lordship mold of Christ that in conversion we are delivered. We now find ourselves in that mold. And that has forever changed our position in relationship to sin. Now Jesus is our master. We're in that mold. Not sin. We're no longer in that mold. We're now in the mold of the lordship of Christ, the mastery of Christ. This happened in conversion. This happened when we obeyed the truth of who Christ is as Lord and Savior. And that forever changed our relationship with sin. We, in effect, exchanged masters from sin to Christ. Well, Romans 6 is about sanctification, living a set-apart life for God. But as Paul shows in verse 17, it is predicated on a saving faith commitment from the heart that obediently conforms to the truth of Christ as Lord. In saving faith, the believer has changed masters. Whereas sin was previously master, now in saving faith, he has recognized Christ as his master. This is the essence of the obedience of faith. Verse 18, what happened as a result of, of your obedience? Thank God it, he brought it to pass in your life. What happened? Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In the obedience of faith to the truth of Christ as Lord and Savior, we were set free from sin. But at the same time, we became slaves of righteousness. We are now under a new rule, the rule of righteousness. In saving faith, again, we had an exchange of masters. Sin is no longer Lord over us. Now Jesus is ruling in righteousness in our lives. So note this, verse 17, you were slaves of sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Been a definite change. Thanks be to God. Verse 18 is a statement of fact. We now have a different master. Fact. Sin is no longer our master. This is a spiritual reality. Well, as believers, we still have the capacity of sinning, as seen in verses 12 and 13. But our position now is such that sin is no longer Lord over us, no longer has mastery. We no longer need to obey it because we are not in bondage to it any longer. Well, Paul's answer to the question in verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, is seen here in verse 18, in that we have now been set free from sin and we are slaves of righteousness. We now have a whole new reality, a whole new master directing our lives. And Paul doesn't present any middle ground one either has sin for a ruling master or righteousness. A person's spiritual position is one or the other. Murray Harris 
says this. One of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to slavery, and slavery leads to freedom. As soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new permanent slavery to Christ. Indeed, the one slavery is terminated precisely in order to allow the other slavery to begin. <laughs> How about that? You're a slave. You exchange one slavery for another. And the great challenge now for us as Christians is to live consistently with our new spiritual position, our new master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. He spelled out our position in Christ, spiritual reality. Now he says, I want you to, to live accordingly. And Paul almost seems a little bit apologetic for using the analogy of slavery. He personified both sin and righteousness in this way to make his point. And he did it for good reason. Namely, he says, to help them understand in view of their, their weakness, uh, what he calls the weakness of your flesh. Well, does this mean that uh, their weakness in being uh, human and grappling with the subject at hand? Uh, does it mean that he thinks that they are still immature uh, many commentators are not sure exactly how to take this. However, it is noted that the illustration of slavery seen in connection with what was commonly practiced in Roman society did not really do justice to the relationship that believers now have in Christ. You know, slavery and grace, that just kind of seems a little unseemly. I'm under grace, I'm under slavery. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what Paul's dealing with. In the Roman context, slavery commonly denoted harsh conditions, which is really not really accurately portray uh, the easy yoke that we find ourselves under Christ. Nevertheless, Paul uses the slave metaphor because it does relay the idea that we are now under the mastery of Christ, even though it's an under grace mastery. The rule of Christ is a lordship rule, but it's also a grace rule. Even though Paul would seemingly have liked to use a little bit different or perhaps softer analogy, even so, he consistently uses this slave analogy for believers in his letters, as do other apostles. For example, here in 1 Corinthians 7, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. So he does use this uh, language consistently. So with this qualifier of speaking in human terms, Paul once again returns to the present theme he introduced in verse 13. ESV says, although Paul acknowledges that the illustration from slavery is imperfect, it nonetheless stresses the importance of giving oneself wholly to God rather than to sin. Well, thus, Paul exhorts them to now present themselves as slaves of righteousness for holiness, just as they had previously, in their pre-conversion days, presented themselves with zeal as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness. And note in this verse here that uh, sin is shown to be a progressive thing, not stagnant. As slaves of uncleanness, they grew more and more into lawlessness. This was the trajectory of their bondage to sin. They were ever growing in sin. Well, just as they were previously growing in sin, he wants them to now grow in righteousness. He now exhorts them to present themselves as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Warren Wearsby said, A friend once told me, I want to be as good a saint as I was a sinner. Hey, how about that? I was a great sinner. Now I want to be a great saint. Uh, that's really what Paul is saying here. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This is where we were as unbelievers. We were slaves of sin. You know, it just led us around by the nose. Uh, you know, we did as we felt uh, what we wanted to do. Uh, we were free in that regard to righteousness. In other words, righteousness did not rule our lives at all. Rather, sin did. Even when unbelievers outwardly do what is right, in their hearts, they are still full of sin and self-righteousness. 
In reality, they are still governed by sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even all the right things a person does as an unbeliever are still tainted by sin. In reality, true righteousness does not govern their lives at all. Well, being free from righteousness, the believer goes ever deeper into sin. You know, they never really get better. They only evolve in their depravity, as noted here in verse 19. And that's where the unbeliever is at. We were there. We were in bondage of sin, ever becoming more sinful. Sin defined us. But now things have changed. By the way, to be free from righteousness is really bondage, whether a person realizes it or not. The world constantly wants to shake off the shackles of righteousness, claiming it's true freedom. But in actuality, it is the opposite. It is really slavery to sin. Let me share a little story. It's just a made-up story. Uh, suppose a large passenger ship is sinking, and the captain knows it. So he tells the passengers that those in second class are free to move up to first class. Those who care to drink can have all the whiskey, vodka, and wine that they desire. If the kids want to play soccer in the dining room, no problem. Doesn't matter what you break. The people aboard the ship cheer this newfound freedom, not realizing they will all soon drown to death. This illustrates the freedom, freedom from righteousness, found in slavery to sin. People think of themselves as free from the restraints of the Bible. That's freedom. They think, well, we're free. We're free to live immorally, to do drugs, to be our own masters, to gratify the flesh as we desire. Not realizing that this freedom is really bondage to sin, and the end is death. In truth, they are enslaved to sin. Sin is the Lord of their lives. Isn't that ironic what they claim freedom is bondage? This is where the whole lost world is at. And this is where we were before we got saved. But he says, verse 21, What fruit did you have then in those things which you are now ashamed? By the way, do you know it's a whole change of attitude? If you're a true believer, you have a different attitude toward sin. You may still fall into sin, maybe grievous sin, but you hate it when you do. It's Romans chapter 7. You don't have the same attitude towards sin. You don't thrive on sin. You don't love sin, not like you did as one who's enslaved to it. What fruit did you have in those things which you are now ashamed? We're ashamed of those things. For the end of those things is death. What fruit, what return, what profit, what benefit did our bondage to uncleanness and lawlessness bring to us? In what way did these things really make our lives better? So, boy, I lived in sin. It was great. My life was rich and full. Really? No. These things really brought about shame. I don't brag about my B.C. days. Sometimes I adhere to it. I really don't even like to talk about it. It's embarrassing. The more I think about it, the more embarrassed I get. And in the end, what does it bring? Death. Eternal death. How's that for fruit? Shame and eternal death. This is bad fruit to the core. There's no lasting long-term positive benefit. It's all for nothing. The best you can say about sin, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, there is fleeting pleasure in sin for a very short season. But even so, the end of those things is death, the legacy of sin's reign in our lives is that of shame and death. But now, as believers, we look back on our former sinful lifestyle with shame. We're embarrassed over how we used to live. Our whole attitude towards sin is now different. Verse 22, but now, things have changed. But now, a new day. But now, having been set free from sin... And having become slaves of God, that's where you are, believer. If you're a true believer, you're there. Having become slaves of God, you have fruit. You do. You have fruit. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. 
Paul here again asserts that the believer has been set free from sin. Again, it is stated as a fact. And yet again, he affirms that we have exchanged slavery for sin for slavery to God. So note what we were. We were slaves of sin, slaves of uncleanness, lawlessness. We were slaves of sin. Three times the emphasis is made. But here's what we now are. Slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. Major dramatic change. Whereas previously, sin ruled our lives as unbelievers, now God rules our lives. We're slaves of God. That denotes a dramatic change. As slaves of God, there is now fruit in our lives. You know, you don't have to say, boy, you know, I, there was never any bad fruit. In my, I, was, I was under the reign of sin, but there was never, there was fruit. It was all bad. Just as sure, if you are a slave of God, there's expected to be some fruit, just as sure as there was under sin. Paul calls this fruit. Now, slaves of God, there is now fruit. What, call, what Paul calls fruit to holiness. This is the fruit of sanctification. Progressive sanctification is in view in our lives. The language is clear. Having become slaves of God is in the aorist tense, signifying fact of action. It's a fact. This transpired at a specific time, as we noted in verse 17, related to heart obedience in a saving faith commitment. But having become slaves of God, we are, we are now, present tense, having fruit resulting in sanctification. There's a changed life that's involved. You can't just continue. His whole point in this whole chapter is you can't just continue on in sin as a believer. You just can't do that. The sense here is that just as sure as we have become slaves of God, just as sure what follows is the fruit of sanctification in our lives. If you are truly a slave of God, then he is working sanctification in your life. Little by little, he is molding and shaping you to be more and more like Christ. It might start out with just the fact that you hate the sin you used to love. You still wrestle with it. You still have the flesh. But things are different. This is true in every believer's life without exception. Just as God disciplines all of his children, as it says in Hebrews 12, he does this to the end to build holiness into their lives. And remember, in Hebrews 12, he disciplines all of his children without exception. And he follows up in Hebrews 12, 14 by saying, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. There is some element of holiness. There is some reflection of God's work in your life if you're a true believer. Uh, and without holiness, you won't even see the Lord. Every slave of God, every born-again child of God has some holiness fruit to show in their life. We're known by our fruit. Now, we're not saved by fruit, but we are known by it. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. Jesus taught this in Matthew 7. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. That's consistent, right? Yeah. What is the tree about? Is it good or bad? Look at the fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. John says the same thing, really. 1 John chapter 3, little children, let no one deceive you. I wonder why he says that. You know why I think he says that? There's a lot of liars around. I'm a Christian. Never shows up one ounce in your life. I'm a Christian. I believe. Right, 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 right. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practice, you're known by your practice. Don't let anybody deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Your practice tells. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned, and we're talking about a, a continual, habitual pattern of life, present tense. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Leon Morris says there's no such thing as a Christian who does not bear fruit. You cannot be a Christian without bearing fruit. It's like saying I can, I can be a Christian and have the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit ever showing any evidence that he lives inside me. No, 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 no. Now, indeed, there are degrees of fruit. 
And there may be seasons where it's like, man, there was, I can't see any fruit during that little season or whatever. Here comes discipline. God's at work. Uh, there are degrees of fruit bearing, and not all fruit is of the same quality. But in truth, all Christians bear some fruit. Being a slave of God results in progressive sanctification in the life we now live. And God is at work to this end in the lives of all those who belong to him. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. God's at work. And in the end, beyond this life, we will experience everlasting life. I like what Dwayne Holmes quipped the other day where he said, I'm going to live until I die and then I'm going to live forever. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah, it is. Everlasting life by definition never ends. It's eternal. But eternal life also refers to a quality of life. Eternal life is God's life. And as believers, we have come to share in God's life related to the experience of fellowship with God. We now share in his life involving God's love, his joy, his peace, and so forth. Now, the Bible speaks of the fact that at the moment we come to believe, we immediately have God's life. We immediately have everlasting life. Right now, we are in fellowship with God and partake of this life that will never end. But the Bible also speaks of life in the hereafter as entering into eternal life. Then we will know the fullness of life that God has prepared for his children in every way. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Footnote here. The phrase eternal life is used 42 times in the New Testament. Most of the time it refers to the believer immediately sharing in the life of God at the moment they come to saving faith. However, 11 of those 42 times, it refers to life in the hereafter that the believer will enter into when they pass from this life. So note the contrast. Being a slave of sin brings the fruit of shame in this life and eternal death to follow. Being a slave of God brings holiness in this life and everlasting life to follow. So here's the contrast that he's drawing. Slave of sin, yeah, there's fruit. It's all bad. Shame in the here and now. Death, eternal death in the end. Slave of God, fruit, good fruit, holiness in the here and now, eternal life in the end. Matthew Henry, well-known pastor in many years gone by, back in the, you know, died in 1714. But um, it's interesting. Some works are enduring, and Matthew Henry is one of those guys uh, his commentaries and so forth. But he had endured the loss of his first wife and three children. He died at the age of 52. He was relatively young. He could have been bitter and complained about this. But as he was on his deathbed, he said, quote, you have been used to take note of the sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in the service of God in communion with him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. How's that for a benefit? That's the benefit of being a slave of God. It knows fellowship with God, sanctification in the here and now, and the very best is yet to be. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Where do you find it? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is Paul's summary statement regarding the entire chapter of Romans 6. It's rich with meaning. Sin is a hard taskmaster. It pays to be a slave of sin. It pays death. It pays. <laughs> death. The wages of sin is death. How's that for treatment? How's sin going to treat you? your master, death. And the parallel here shows that Paul is ultimately talking about eternal death in contrast to eternal life. Now, some Christians incorrectly say, well, everyone in the end has eternal life because everyone will endure and go on forever in one place or another. Yes, there is continuation. There is continuing existence. But that's not the issue. Those enslaved 
to sin are going to experience eternal death, not eternal life. Remember, eternal life is sharing in God's life. The lost will never experience this. In contrast, the gift of God is eternal life. While sin pays a wage related to being its slave, namely death, the slave of God is given the gift of eternal life. It's not a wage because it's a grace gift that cannot be earned. It's all based on what Jesus did, as emphasized in Romans chapter 5, the cross work. The slaves of sin get what they deserve. They get paid according to what they've done. In contrast, the slaves of God are graced or gifted with eternal life. This reality of the gift of God being eternal life relates to Jesus being Savior. As noted back in Romans 5:17, believers are those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And we note there in 5:17 that they receive this gift. And then here in 6.17, we have noted this involves a response of obedience from the heart, what is called the obedience of faith. A person receives this gift on the basis of faith alone. But it must be the right kind of faith that obediently recognizes Christ as Lord and Savior. The gift of God's eternal life is in the sphere of being in Christ. That's being in union with him on the basis of faith. And then appropriately, Paul finishes this chapter with, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those who have eternal life know Jesus as Lord. They know him as Savior, hence the gift of God. They know him as Lord, that is, as Master. Note that the gift of eternal life and having Jesus as our Lord is a package here in Romans 6.23. It's spoken in the same breath. To have the gift is to know Jesus as our Lord. There's no such thing as having Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. That's contrary to everything that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6. What defines the true believer? Well, here's what he says. Slaves of obedience. Slaves of righteousness. Slaves of God. Christ Jesus, our Lord, that is our master. The entire thrust of Romans 6 is this. Who is your master? Who is your Lord? Is it sin or is it Jesus? You can't have it both ways. Paul paints a contrast throughout, showing a person is either in one category or the other. Either they are a slave of sin with its fruit, or they are a slave of God with its fruit. So we see two masters, sin versus God. Two prospects, wages versus gift. Two ends, Death versus eternal life. Everyone is in one of these two categories. Either we're in the category of sin, wages, and death, or we're in the category of God, gift, and eternal life. And it all depends on what we do with Jesus. Paul is strongly emphasizing that for believers, Jesus is now our master. And therefore, we should live accordingly. This is the main thrust of Romans 6. It's all about union with Christ, who is our master and now living accordingly. A person's master is who they obey. To answer Paul's two key questions related to sin and grace, as found in Romans 6, 1 and verse 15, Paul in effect says it's impossible for a true Christian to continue unabated in a lifestyle pattern of sin because of their life-changing union with Christ. It's impossible for a true Christian to habitually practice sin under the rule of grace because in truth they are now slaves of God. And that reality changes everything. Well, Romans 5 emphasizes Jesus as the believer's Savior. Christ died for us. Romans 6 emphasizes Jesus as the believer's Lord as we are now the slaves of God. For true believers... We are now in union with Christ. We're dead to sin, fact. We're alive to God through Jesus. Sin no longer has mastery over us. We now have Jesus as our Lord and Master. We are to know this. We are to reckon it to be so. And we are to present ourselves to God 
accordingly. Of course we can sin. And yes, we do sin. But we don't have to. We don't have to. And we will not do so according to the habitual pattern we knew as slaves of sin. Someone as well summarized Romans 6, 15 through 23 with the words of allegiance, fruit, and destiny. An unbeliever's allegiance is to sin. The fruit is shame, and the destiny is death. The believer's allegiance is to Christ Jesus our Lord. The fruit is holiness, and our destiny is eternal life. Many years ago, an unbeliever in the bondage of sin named W.E. Henley wrote the poem entitled Invictus. Invictus means unconquered, which is, again, ironic because he thinks he's unconquered, but he's totally conquered by sin. But here's what it goes like. Invictus, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Pride, oh yeah, I'm holding to it to the end. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds, finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. In contrast, Dorothy Day wrote a poem titled, My Captain, which reflects the true believer who is a slave of God. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule that men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him, and his the aid that, spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid, I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Many years ago, as a brand new Christian, Bob Dylan wrote a song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Some of you old timers remember. In the song was the refrain, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Who is your master? Who do you serve? Is sin your master or is Jesus Christ the Lord? Have you obeyed from the heart the gospel truth of Jesus as Lord and Savior? As a young man, the Holy Spirit was working in me. I went to church one day. And a pastor by the name of Eddie Masters was preaching. And he preached Romans 6.23. And it was like an arrow to my soul. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.